Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. To get you through the holiday week, check out theringer.com for our July streaming recommendations, analysis on the U.S. women's national team during the World Cup, and takeaways from an exciting start to NBA free agency. Also, we'll be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows throughout the week as usual. Welcome back. It's Larry Wilmer. You're listening to Black on the Air. How's it going, everybody? Happy Fourth of July, by the way. I hope you're exploding things and seeing things catch fire. (laughs) I guess that's what we do. Fourth of July, grilling things. Everything has to do with fire on Fourth of July, making things combust. Um, Hope you're having a very safe and fun Fourth of July. I'm talking to Cory Booker today, who, of course, Senator Cory Booker, running for president. We had a good conversation. He, of course, was part of that uh, clown's car debate <laughs> you know, last week. It was like a clown car where all these people were coming out of it and went to the debate stage. It was ridiculous. Corey actually did pretty good in his debate. He got some good, uh, some good response, but he hasn't seen the breakthrough yet. So we talk about that a bit and uh, some of his views and all that stuff. He, uh, we had a lot of fun. He was my first guest on The Nightly Show back in the day. So big fan of, of Mr. Booker. It'll be interesting to see how he does, though, too, you know. I'll reserve any negative comments I might make about him, too. But I would make those in fun because I really do respect him a lot. I think he's great. I don't know who's going to who's gonna cut through in this Democratic thing. I have no idea. Kamala Harris had a good showing at the debate. But basically, by, by <laughs> knocking down Joe Biden, I mean, not by really making a point about her presidency or about Trump, but by taking Biden down a couple of steps. So I wonder how long it's going to last. That's what's kind of interesting to me. It wasn't like I, I, she didn't rise in the polls because people said, man, I can't wait till she does that as president or whoo, those are some good ideas. I get you. It was like, oh, she told that white man <laughs> she put him in his place. You know, that's what it was, it seemed like, which, you know, maybe people think, you know, to be fair, maybe people think that's the kind of strength you need to beat Trump, which is fair. That's a fair comment. And, you know, she was a, a district attorney and, um, you know, a lot of progressives actually don't like her because of that, which I really don't understand. I mean, that's your job, whatever. You have to do what you have to do sometimes in those situations. But, um, you know, apparently she was an effective district attorney. But she uh, she knows how to debate. I've always said Kamala Harris is very talented. She's a very talented politician. You know, I just, I don't know. I haven't been on board yet with believing <laughs> the things that she says all the time. I'm not sure where she stands on some things. Like, I'll give you an example. I'm not, I don't want to just throw that out there without saying it. Like, I don't know how she feels about getting rid of private insurance. She's like said both things. Like, she would get rid of it. She might not get rid of it. I feel like she's kind of like putting the finger out there and seeing which way the wind's blowing on that. Like, you know, she may be, I, you know, I'm sure she wants to have a better healthcare system and all that stuff. But I don't know if she has a position on that. I really don't. And that just bugs me. It's like, just take a position. You know, just because people are saying that you they want to get rid of private insurance, if you don't believe that, you don't have to say it. Nobody's going to run from you because of that. Just stand on your own two feet. Have your own opinions. It's okay to have your own opinions. It's different. That's how Bernie got noticed at first. He didn't, he didn't give a shit what people thought about free college and all that stuff, you know. And he said, yeah, I'm a socialist. What the fuck? Who cares? You know, now everybody's saying, I'm a socialist too, you know. Everybody's jumping on that train four years later. But Bernie just, you know, he didn't care. He was just his own person. You could look at tapes of Bernie back in the 80s where he's he's keeping a little too real on that side. 
but he's always had that courage of his conviction. So that's what I'm looking for in Kamala Harris. I want to see her just stand in something specific, not general, but specific, where she doesn't care that uh, people may differ with her. When I say people, I mean the progressives. I mean the left wing of the party, the energy that runs the primaries. You know, I would love to see that. You know, it might not happen, but I would love to see that. I don't know if I'm if I feel good about supporting anyone at this point, but I usually reserve that till we get further along. I just like people to win me over. I don't like to just throw my support to somebody. I like them to do the work. They're the one running. You do the work. You win me over. That's how I feel about it. But I do think that, I think Biden is fading, you guys. And it's funny because I bring up the fact that she she kind of knocked him down on a non-political issue. And by non-political, it has nothing to do with the election, the way she knocked him down. And it wasn't just a moment. He lost poll points on that. So I think people are losing faith in Biden. And I don't know if he's the person who's going mano a mano with Trump to beat him. If I'm looking at this just as a competition, I kind of think you do need somebody who's completely different than Trump. You know, like people think you need this safe old white guy who's like Trump, but he's not. (laughs) You know, what the fuck is that? Seriously. You know, I think you need a real difference, you know, whether that's because it's a woman or someone who's very youthful or someone who brings that energy, you know, somebody who can get belong, who you can get behind immediately and it's it's the whole package that does it, I think, is important. Politics is a selling game. It's not just having the right idea and stuff. You know, it's it's that whole package. Like, I always feel the candidate who's, <laughs> who, you know, has the most charisma usually wins. You know, even if somebody has the best ideas, usually the one that is the most telegenic or charismatic wins. The best example of that was JFK and Nixon where in their debate, Nixon was kind of ahead in that race, although it was close. But because he had been vice president, he was more well-known than Kennedy at the time. You know, Kennedy was was surging, but it was very close. And, you know, people weren't divided along political ideological lines as much as they are today. They were divided, I'd say, more around cultural lines in some ways, you know. And the civil rights issue was coming up, and that was a big cultural thing. But at that time, Republicans— were probably more on that side than the Democrats who had a lot of the Dixiecrats at that time. So Kennedy and Johnson changed all that. But before that happened, at the debate, people, if you were going to pick a winner before you saw it, you might say Nixon probably going to win, you know. Now, here's what happened. So Kennedy, Nixon had the debate. Nixon doesn't shave, you know, or he's got five o'clock shadow. He's like sweating under his lip. It's like all this disgusting stuff, you know. Uh, he's wearing like a gray suit, so he looks like the background, like he's a headless guy in debating. <laughs> in some ways, if you look at it, that's what it looks like. Kennedy's all tanned. You know, he just came from California. He was out in California. He's got a dark suit. He looks like a he looks like a rock star, you know, or a movie star. He looks fantastic. People watching the debate, Kennedy clearly won. He won over a lot of people who um, didn't even really know him that well. You know, elections weren't covered then like they are now, twenty four seven, and all that stuff, and arguably gave him the edge in the final election. On the other hand, people that listened to it on the radio felt that Nixon won. <laughs> you know, they didn't have the advantage of seeing the whole picture. You know, they could just hear it. And if you just listen to the debate, you know, Nixon sounds very steady. He sounds in charge. There's nothing to make you think that he's not the Nixon who you felt comfortable with during those eight years of the sleepy Eisenhower administration. 
is the guy who cried on TV about his dog checkers. Why should I vote against him? You know, I mean, he seems a little douchey, but you know, at least I know who he is, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's what they're probably thinking, right? You know, but then you're watching like, who the fuck is this motherfucker who just walked in the door? Even the guys are like, you know what? I would probably fuck him. You know, I'm not even gay, but I probably would. You know, it just changes everything. So that whole package starts to become an issue, you know, and it takes on different forms. You know, one of the most unlikely ones is Carter beating Ford, where the thing about Carter, the whole package on him where he, you know, this is right after Watergate. You know, people were disillusioned with government. Ford pardoned Nixon, which really uh, hurt his chances of becoming president. And he had gaps and stuff like that. But Ford actually was kind of likable. In a weird way. (laughs) But Carter comes around and he's not from Washington. You know, he's kind of hokey. He smiles all the fucking time. People forget this. Carter smiled all the fucking time. He would not stop. That motherfucker would not stop smiling, right? And people couldn't get enough of it. He he had this weird optimism about everything. I'm just being a solid. I'll just the reason why I even talk like this is I can't stop smiling all the fucking time, you know. And people just liked it. And that whole package really beat Ford, as far as I'm concerned, you know. And then the opposite happened to him when he ran against Reagan. Carter was beaten down by that point. Hostages were in Iran. The economy was a mess. Interest rates were soaring. He didn't seem like he was in control of things. Um, He was one of those presidents that you always encourage Americans to do the— you know, the right thing, but it was like, well, we don't want to, like you say, turn your thermostats down. And he was, it seemed like he was ordering us to do stuff. And people just didn't like that. People were just tired of that, even though he wasn't wrong, you know. And Reagan comes along, hey, everybody, I'm a movie star, you know. And suddenly this charismatic guy says, morning in America again. You know, it's like, well, who the fuck is this guy, you know. And that whole feeling, you know, again, and Carter was done smiling at that point, you know. You know, he could barely manage a grin, it seemed like. You know, he looked like a defeated man. You know, that package pretty much beat him, you know. So when you look at this race, what's the package that's going to win? You know, what's that whole package? Who brings that? You know, it can't just be your ideas on immigration. It can't just be the economy, whatever. What's the package that America's going to vote for? Obama had this thing that nobody had seen before, you know, he was a unicorn in every sense of the word. It was an amazing ability to inspire people without even saying much, really, in terms of substance. You know, the progressives who loved Obama painted their own pictures on him. They didn't even care about specifics, but they had this whole idea of what he represented. Obama was one of those unusual packages where it wasn't so much the substance of what he said. It's what he, it was the um, promise of what he represented, you know, hope and change, you know. All that kind of stuff, you know. Hillary and Trump was so interesting because those were both almost negative packages, you know, <laughs> in a way. I've, I don't think I've ever seen that where both candidates kind of had that. Hillary, I felt the negative package was, I felt, this is my opinion, of how much she had been attacked like on Benghazi and a lot of things. And a lot of the attacks on her untrustworthiness or whatever. I thought a lot of that was unfair. But I don't know if there was enough done package-wise to get over that that feeling. People, And I'm talking about people who supported Clinton. A lot of them did it reluctantly, not trusting her. She was attacked a lot by her own side, by the left, in terms of that and not representing people and all that stuff. She was horribly attacked by her own side, you know. Trump, of course, is 
is just one of the worst people ever. <laughs> so, and he has a slimy kind of slimy package and all that stuff, you know, that business van thing. But there's something about the way he just didn't give a fuck. It's the doesn't give a fuck part of that package of Trump, which to me made the edge in that election for those people who just needed that for whatever it was, for whether it was the cultural reasons or whatever. I think that part of that package in some weird way made that difference. I'm being real picky on that one because it was close. Hillary did win the popular vote, you know, but if you're going to pick something, I have to pick that. It's more clear, I think, in other elections. That one's a little tough because of the big negatives on both of the candidates. You know, Trump almost won by attrition, honestly. This one's a little different. I think the Democratic candidate is not going to have that problem. So, but who is that person? It's going to be interesting to see. So I'm going to stay on this. I'm going to look at it from this point of view, let you know what happens. What else? Is that it? What are you guys going to eat today? Have you figured it out? I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Probably watch some fireworks. Have a safe holiday. Happy Fourth of July to everyone. And um, enjoy my talk with Cory Booker. All right. Welcome back. The guest of honor today. Uh, possible president of the United States, you guys, right here in our don't in stand the up, ringer, Larry. don't stand in up in the ringer office, <laughs> Mr. Cory Booker. Welcome to Black on the Air. It's very, it's very good. Do you Senator. do a lot of black puns, like no, not black really. by popular demand. No, or, we started with that, yes, yeah. but you know, the first guest was like Norman Lear and Bernie <laughs> Sanders, so we just dropped that right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, how black is this podcast going to be exactly? You know, <laughs> it's kind of an homage to the Nightly Show a little bit. You okay, know? just saying I'm back and black on the air and that kind of thing. All right. You know, but the show really is about the stuff. And, and by the way, thank you for for coming. I want to thank Corey, especially you were on my first nightly show. Yes, I re- and by the way, I really appreciate. No, that. I really was great. honored to be to yeah. be one of the first. But, but then fun. you rewarded me by throwing a bunch of tea bags at me. And, man. and why did I throw? Because you said at I you? was not keeping it one hundred. about something. what was I not keeping? You were. Keep, I think what were you, you. What were you not keeping it one hundred? I think about? you were asking me if I was running hmm. for president. And what was your answer? And my answer was probably no. You were like. Mm, <laughs> And then the tea bags started coming. Throw it. I was and where are we right now? <laughs> Who was right? Who was right? Come on, come on, come on, come on Senator. Listen, that, that, you were you're a prophet, man. That was a little prophecy yeah. there. You know what are you going to yeah. do? I could see it in you. I think it feels like you've been preparing for this for a long time. I won't say necessarily consciously, but I think people who have that in their path, let's yeah. say, they kind of do the things that get them ready for it. Is that fair, though? You know, I feel mm-hmm. like I took a career path. Like, what decisions are you going to make right. in order to not be qualified to become president? <laughs> I don't mean that in my personal life or uh-huh. anything, but, you know, look, I came out of law school and mm-hmm. I decided, you know, to move into the toughest neighborhood I can find in Newark. and Right out of law school? Right out of law school. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, What were your goals? Were you looking to get into politics back then? There's a guy that was my hero named Jeffrey Canada, mm-hmm. who is this guy that was, he's a MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, mm-hmm. but he's this guy that grew up in in a very, very tough part of New York. and. Right. Uh, but he started this incredible nonprofit in in Harlem uh, called the Harlem Children's Zone, mm-hmm. and his book Fist Stick Knife Gun, which is a really short book, really good read. It's a great title. You know, it's all about why would a kid bring a a, a gun or a knife to, to school? Mm-hmm. It's like a bad child. No, right. it's often fear. You grow up in these environments where you're constantly mm-hmm. afraid. Your your cortisol is constantly running. Mm-hmm. You don't have security. You think you need that. 
And he just had this intimate understanding of himself going through these things about what children really need to be mm. secure, strong, deal with often childhood trauma. So he started this amazing program in Harlem that now has transformed it. But I just so compelled by what he did in that book, which was mm-hmm. I'm going to move into the toughest neighborhood. I'm going to be a part of a community and struggle. And that was my vision at the time. And then I, I got a two by four hit up against my yeah. head. Did you grow – what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? So I – 50 years ago uh-huh. this summer, it was the summer of 69, uh-huh. my parents were were two black folks who came out of HBCUs. My mom went to Fisk. My my, oh, wow. my dad went to North Carolina Central. Uh-huh. They, they moved into the same building in D.C., and my mom was engaged to another man. Wow. Yes, scandalous. And yeah. they ended up uh, meeting, falling in love. Um, you know, they had their first— date in front of the Lincoln Memorial, very, uh-huh. very, like in one of those paddle boats. My, right. my my dad knew my mom couldn't swim, so he got her out in a paddle boat so he, oh so God. she couldn't leave and and made his rap and it worked. And my, my dad had the luck and the fortune to marry my mom and my mom had the charity and mercy to marry my dad. And uh-huh. so That's one way to clean that up. It's a good way to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they were two of the first African-Americans in this wave of blacks that were suddenly hired by companies that used to never hire blacks. Yeah, it used to be just civil service jobs yes. up to that point. My dad started as a probation officer. Like those were the jobs that blacks could get right away yeah. in that kind of transition era, let's yeah. say. Civil rights transition era. Yeah, my grandparents, yeah. my grandmother worked for the my both my grandparents, both my mom's parents worked for government. Yeah. They were they it's were the jobs that we could get. class jobs. Right, right? exactly. And so my dad becomes the black, first black salesman for IBM in the entire yeah. Virginia area, mm-hmm. and he kills it. I mean, mm-hmm. he's now there, like, gets to be, like, their top 5% of their global salesman, gets a promotion up to New York. Mm-hmm. My mom up in uh, – uh, gets a job – she was a D.C. public school speech pathologist, but gets mm-hmm. a job with IBM as well. And now they're looking for places to live mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and they want the best public schools, which happen to be in white neighborhoods. Right. And so every time they would show up to look at a home, the uh, owner of the house, <laughs> the, the real estate agent would say, oh, I'm sorry, this house is sold. Oh, it's been ha- pulled up. Right. And so they found this group of activists uh, that said, we're, we're going to help you. And they started sending a white couple behind my parents. When they were told the house was Great. sold, my parents would find out it was – the white couple would find out it was still for sale. And so the house I grew up in, my parents were told it was sold. The white couple found out it was still for sale. They put mm-hmm. a bid on the house. A bid was accepted. Papers were drawn up. And then on the day of the closing in the real estate agent's office – the uh, white couple uh, didn't show up. My dad did, and a volunteer lawyer named Marty Friedman. Wow. And they walk in the real estate agent's office, and the real estate agent doesn't – this should be the end of the story, but he is uh-huh. so angry. <laughs> they punch He's like, it. what is this, a race bait and switch? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> he, I see how I did that? I did that. You see, I knew we were going to get to the puns, <laughs> the race puns. Yeah. Um, so uh, the real estate agent gets up and punches my dad's lawyer in the face. What? Yes. And literally, there's a dog, a Doberman Pinscher. In the corner, and he sigs the dog on my dad. So no. this, this, my father tells me it was like a fight. Things break in. My dad's trying to hold back this dog. And in the end, the guy starts crying, begging my dad, like pulling at him, don't move in this neighborhood. You'll ruin this. The real estate agent. Yes. Wow. Yes. And so you imagine my brother and I, I was a baby at that point, mm-hmm. 50 years ago this month. I was like two months old. Right. And my. Dad, you know, my mom and like, you know, I always joke that every time my dad would tell the story, the dog would get bigger, you know. She'd <laughs> right, <of> <laughs> yes. be like, I fought right. a pack of wolves to get you in this house, <laughs> yes, <exactly>. boy. <laughs> and but and my, then I was raised by yeah, after my parents yeah. left. <laughs> well, my, I raised, was raised by these parents who like 
first of all, it was, it was always— Did they end up buying the house? Yeah, I, I grew up there, man. Wow. And, and my father called us the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. Wow. And my parents would, would raise me with this dinner table where they would talk about the racism and the hatred, but they mm-hmm. would always talk about the good people mm-hmm. who, in times of moral crisis— showed who we are, that, you know, this ideal of patriotism is actually love of country. And you can't love your country unless you love your countrymen and women. And my parents believed that it was people who sought to make a beloved community mm-hmm. who understood that if your kids don't have a great public school, my kids are lesser off. And my parents sort of celebrated those people and those stories. My mom was was part of the sit-in movement, helped to plan the March on Washington. Right. So I grew up with this activist table, but at the same time, two parents in corporate America. Yeah, very middle class, upper middle class background. Yes, and, mm-hmm. and as my father used to say, boy, you know, you drink deeply from wells of freedom. You didn't dig, and you you, you get blessings. In a, uh, Much you, requires more. Yeah, but my father mm-hmm. said, you, you're not here to sit around getting dumb fat That's and, right. and happy. That's right. You you have an obligation to to prove worthy of it. So mm-hmm. what was my first job coming out of law school? Is I moved to Newark to fight for people's housing rights because people fought for mine. Yeah. And so I was a tenant rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always say Newark, like, smacked me up head with a two-by-four when I first got there because I decided to, like my hero, move into a tough neighborhood. Literally, as I'm moving my stuff in, I come back to my car, my stuff is stolen. Right. There's a there's like a crack house right uh, next to the building I'm living. I'm renting a, a room. There's sh- shootings in the neighborhood. You know, you hear gunfire. And the neighbor's like, oh, you want to be back, huh? Well, it was, it was, <laughs> I, it was really one of these, the, the women, the, there's a, we now named a street after this woman. She was a tenant president on the fifth floor of the projects. Mm-hmm. These are projects I would eventually move into and live in for uh, close to a decade. Did your parents have an opinion about this? Yeah. Because their generation did the opposite. They yes. felt— Moving blacks moving into the white place is the way to make something better because you're changing the mindset of people by your example, right? Now you're taking your privilege of having a certain lifestyle and bringing it back to the community. Did they see it that same way? They did. They or had, did were they concerned? Like we did, we did all this. Why are you moving well, back? Well, I would say a little both. I uh-huh. mean, look, my parents didn't seem to get. They were weird parents, and they seemed to not be celebrate my personal accomplishments. I mm-hmm. still remember when I told my mom I was an all-American high school football player. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, but what you do on your calculus test? Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, mom. You had a tiger, mom. You yeah. understand I'm going to get into college <laughs> because yes. of football. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always joke I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards. That's why you're a high achiever. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Also, you know, you're you're still. But, but my, yeah. par- my parents were like, so. You know, it, it was like Stanford, Oxford, uh-huh. Yale, and my dad's like, "Boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot." Wow. Like, like, yeah, like, what do you, you? Life ain't about the degrees you get; it's about the service you give. So my okay. parents, my parents thought that my brother and I need to be a part of the fight. You know, my and my parents were. I mean, my parents may have worked for IBM, but my mom ended up being the like chair of that fair housing council because uh-huh. she, you know, she when in retirement she's like running a homeless or- organization in Atlanta, and uh-huh. so. The service was such a like that was the that was what distinguished you the heroes, uh, you know in my the, the pictures and the busts they were all people that were involved in 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 making the community better, and and so I I I had and I say that it was both because my parents were also really worried about my safety of course yeah. and and that was one thing that my mom and dad always worried about and mm-hmm. interestingly enough when I took on the political machine in Newark I don't want to fast forward past Miss mm-hmm. Jones uh, because. Mm-hmm. 
you know, my father was really worried that somebody was going to set me up because we had police sure. following us. What happened to Nipsey Hussle? I yeah. mean, he has had a business, wanted to stay in that neighborhood, help the neighborhood, you know, and, you know, the tragic just getting shot down like that. It's just a tragedy when he's trying to do a good thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. But anyhow, not not to impose that. On no, but look, point. it it it. Uh, but there are you know, there's danger putting yourself in at the front line of fire, so to speak. Yeah, you know. And what people don't realize is, you know, I said on the debate stage, on the presidential mm-hmm. debate stage. Yeah, said, it's very. Eloquent. And I said, look, there's, I had seven people shot in my neighborhood, and this is it. Sort of jars people, but this is America. We have people, hundred people die of gun violence every day. And most of them are, look like you and I. Black men are 6% of the nation's population, but they make up over 55% of the homicide victims. Mm. And, and it's not happening in, in all the neighborhoods. It's concentrated in certain communities. And so I'm living in one of those communities now. And I still remember knocking on the door of this woman, Miss Virginia Jones, with the arrogance of a Yale law student. And I'm like, hey, Mom, I'm here to help you, ma'am. And she looks at me, looks right through me like with this look like, boy, you need some help. And and she knew it right away. And so she just started giving me the toughest love I had probably since my own mom. And I still remember one of the things she did to me right away, which is still like a metaphor I use for life. She takes me down to Martin Luther King Boulevard. I was living across the street from the project. She was the tenant president of the projects. And she's like, boy, you want to help me? What do you see? I'm like, what do you mean? She was describe the neighborhood. And I just started describing the crack house, just describing it. I looked around. I just started describing you know what I saw, and then she just looks angry. She says, "You can't help me." And she walks away from me, mm-hmm. and I run after her, confused. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And she goes, "You need to understand something. You can't help me because the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you." And she goes, "If you're one of those people who just comes in my neighborhood and only sees problems, darkness, and despair, that's all this is ever going to be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see my neighborhood, you see the love and beauty, and you see the face of God, she goes, then you can be one of those people that helps me." Mm-hmm. And she walks away, leaving me on the on the side of the street feeling stupid and like, <laughs> okay, like, great, great. All right, now what do I do? <laughs> yeah. So I actually hmm. came correct. I went back to her neighborhood and, and this this was a period where I was still a Yale law student, but I would feel like I got I would go to class. I would sit in her on her couch and she was like, uh, God bless Miss Jones. I know her kids are probably gonna hear this, but she kept a lot of stuff in her house. So she had like stacks of newspaper and stuff like that. But but people mm-hmm. would literally come to her door all day asking for things, help. And she was just one of those women, like, I need a job. She would just find little ways to help mm-hmm. people that just watching this woman in action, I began to understand what she was all about. But but I really didn't at that point. I didn't know that her son was murdered in the lobby mm. of the building I would move into. I didn't know that, you know, she was still taking care of her, you know, uh, 90-year-old mother. I mean, she was working at the prosecutor's office. She was, you know, a deaconess at the church. I mean, she was this powerful woman with the force of her will in the in the midst of the crisis of the 80s and 90s, the crack epidemic, she kept this community together, her and a number of other black women. And witnessing that and having her s- sort of decide to, to mentor me and teach mm-hmm. me, change the trajectory of my career, literally and figuratively, figuratively because, you know, she, and I miss her deeply, she was one of these people that taught me love. She taught me, mm-hmm. she taught me, I use the definition of hope I learned from her, which is here's a woman who saw the most wretchedness of society, the the ugliness of this country, and and she taught me that hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word, because she could have left. She I know what she made. I moved in the projects 
I mean, I'm telling you, this was the best place I ever lived and the hardest place I ever lived. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, you know, you had no heat, <laughs> hot water. You had, you had, mm-hmm. you know, I would wake up in the morning, come down. The, the elevators barely worked. I lived on the top floor. Mm-hmm. You know, you come down and you see somebody passed out in your in your store. Well, you kind of want to see if they're alive or not. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a very tough time. But the community was so strong. And she could have lived in a lot of other places, but she never moved out of these yeah. projects. Let me ask you this. So you characterize this as a gun issue, you know, and I know that's an issue of yours. But, like, when you talk about the projects, it's much more than a gun issue. You know, it's not just guns are the problem in the projects, you know. I mean, what you're describing has a lot to do with poverty, has a lot to do with the history of how that happened. Like, when when you're in that situation, I mean, you were also mayor of Newark. How do you go about changing a situation like that? Because Newark, you could, ch- you know, change places with other cities that are like that, that have, have had those problems for a long time. Yeah. You know, and that to me is the riddle of the Sphinx. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because no one's come up with the answer for that. And, it, and as well, if you're, would, if you're telling me. You to that. I if, would challenge you on well, that. Well, I'm going to challenge you right now with this question. If you're telling me you've moved there how many years ago? Uh, uh, 20 plus. And you're telling me in a debate last week that, that, that seven people were shot? Yeah. I'm, I don't call that an improvement. Well, I wish we were doing this interview right. in, in my community because yeah. um, when she talked about what, what you see outside of you, mm-hmm. if you walk my streets now, uh, I'll show you a, uh, a brand new high school, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a huge nine-acre track that was a dump that now is our biggest uh, municipal park. Mm-hmm. I would show you black businesses that weren't there before that now people double, triple park in front of Bonda's uh, kitchen. I would show you uh, housing, new housing mm-hmm. that that is reflective of the dignity of people in my community. I'd show you a supermarket, a brand name chain supermarket in the middle of a food desert, first one in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we have not solved all the problems, but I literally, if I stood, if we went to go back in the 90s when I moved in that neighborhood and tell, told you what was going to come, uh, uh, you wouldn't believe it would be possible. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I am very proud that I still live in an inner city black and brown community where we do struggle, where people on my block work full-time jobs, harder and longer hours than my parents did and still need food stamps at my local bodega. Mm-hmm. I am upset that I live in a community where in some of our schools, kids still drink out of bottled water. Because there are 3,000 jurisdictions in America where children have more than twice the blood lead levels of Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I, I am upset that I live in a, in a, in a community where the, the brokenness of the criminal justice system right across the street from me is a drug treatment program called Integrity House. They are an amazing nonprofit. I hope people look them up. Uh, because. But when I sit in a circle with the guys and, and you see that we treated their addictions or mental health issues with dozens and dozens and dozens of arrests before they got the support and the help that they need, costing us as taxpayers ridiculous money when we could have done the humane and, and, and just thing of helping people. So there are forces going on in, in, in my community mm-hmm. beyond my control as a mayor. But with what we had and the spirit of Miss Jones, Frank Hutchins, I can name the heroes who never gave up on that community. We are now going through a city that's going through its biggest economic development boom. Uh-huh. 60 years of population decline, businesses leaving. Now, when I was leaving to become a senator, one out of every three building permits in the state for commercial residential construction was going on in Newark, and we're 6% of the state's population. Okay. So why is there still this phenomena happening from because, your point of view? Why is it happening? Because it's the same reason why. And who's doing it? 
okay, it's the same reason why. Mm-hmm. And I want to just pitch to our school system, which now is the number one school system in America mm-hmm. for beat the odds schools, high poverty, high performance. Great. But 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 when you say why, this is the challenge. Well, I'm saying all these. You're telling me all these good things are happening. So somebody out there. You know, yeah. is imposing some bad shit. Excuse my language. Yeah, but, it's, but 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 <laughs> you know? but but, but uh, we, we it, like there's. It sounds like there's some good structure going on. What's this element that is not? Yeah, but why involved do we, well, in let's go further than right. that? Why do we have a nation where we have we can send use trillions of dollars to send people over overseas, mm-hmm. but when they come back, our our veterans' homeless rates are are disproportionate. Are you saying veterans are doing this? No, no, no. I just want I'm, what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to get to this point. Mm-hmm. We want to. Create a, just problems in the inner city, and I'm trying to tell you, there's not a neighborhood in America. Mm-hmm. I've been from factory towns to rural towns mm-hmm. to there. We all in America have a deep abiding common pain, mm-hmm. problems that just sh- should not exist in the country this this mighty, this wealthy. That that that. Let's not just say that there are communities like mine. What my communities help me to do is have a deeper empathy for other communities that are different places, different spaces, mm-hmm. but still struggling with a lot of the same issues. And and what's interesting now is a lot of the issues that used to be thought about just as urban issues, addiction, gun violence, now people are waking up to understanding that, wait a minute, this cancer is all throughout our country. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying to you, one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I think we have a common pain in our country, but we've lost our sense of common purpose. And, and we don't – we have not fully learned that lesson of King that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I have done in the Senate in this very short – I have a mayor longer than I've been a senator now – is try to highlight things that people don't even know is a problem. Like I introduced this piece of legislation with Elizabeth Warren. I went to her because I was a little ignorant of it. Because I've been working on criminal justice issues in, That's for one years. Of passions, right? One of my passions. But uh-huh. I said more, having more women coming up to me and saying, you never talk about the particular issues of women incarcerated. Uh-huh. And so I went to visit a women's facility. Started watching Orange is the New Black. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I did. I did. <laughs> I, she's actually uh, – the woman who that show's based upon sure. is pretty uh, – an incredible activist. Uh-huh. And I remember going to a women's facility, walking into this tough warden and saying to her, how many women here are survivors of sexual trauma? She stops and looks really vulnerable to me. It's like she goes probably about 95% of I, my women. I c- completely would agree with yeah. that. I'm sure that's the case. And right? so I was supposed to get a tour of the facility. I ended mm-hmm. up sitting in the, what was like a cafeteria area and just talking to women for my whole time because their stories were so unconscionable that they had to make their own tampons mm-hmm. because they couldn't afford it, that they have children that now are split up into two or three homes and they have to charge usury rates just to make phone calls. Right. Uh, when you when the when the they're in facilities, when we're talking about facilities they were in where the guards had no trauma-informed care, they hear women that are victims of sexual assault and these men, male guards just walking in on them when they're uh, you know in using the toilet or all all I mean the system harms and hurts more than it helps. And so when I when I went to the Senate, I said, I'm going to try to talk about stuff that we that we don't talk about in America and find solutions that involve often people across the aisle than me, but to show people that we have more common cause than we know. Senator Warren and I passed this, introduced this piece of legislation. It doesn't get passed on the federal level, but more than a dozen states have now picked up our law and introduced the Dignity Act for women. So I'm Never going to leave my community. I hope I do for eight, eight mm-hmm. years in the White House. But well, let me ask you. Let me ask you that. Do you think that? 
Because I've really been thinking about your issue a lot and the fact that you're in Newark. And, I mean, I was really moved by what you said, you know, about being in that neighborhood, you know. And I, and I know, you know, how authentic you are about that. And I wonder, is it – can you solve those types of problems from the federal level or can they – should they be solved at the local level? Like, I'm not saying this as a suggestion for you, but is it more effective being a mayor of a city like that as opposed to being a president when you can't focus on – on those type of things. Yeah, I... You know what I mean? Like, well, especially when that's your passion. Like, yes. for you, it's feet, foot on, feet on the ground passion is what you have. That that boots on the ground, right? Yes. You know, of getting people, pro- you know, feeling good about the community's places, really seeing those changes. You can't really do that as president, right? You absolutely can. Mm-hmm. And look, I... Um, I mean, you got to. How much of your time is going to be spent hanging out with Kim Jong Un, <laughs> <laughs> partying with Putin? I mean, your calendar is going to be full. <laughs> I don't know if you have taken to account. Holding hands with Macron. I don't know if you've looked at your possible schedule, Mr. Possible President. <laughs> let me give you. No, but you know what I mean. Let me give like, you an example of this. Your, your interests have are so are so broad as they president, are. and, and, I, look, and your powers are. Your interests are broad. Your powers are limited. Right, but but but, <laughs> but first of all, don't I don't want to discount mm-hmm. what you know. I I flew into Zimbabwe with Jeff Flake, mm-hmm. a Republican from Arizona, you know, trying to affirm the human rights and human dignity of the Zimbabwean people. There's wonderful mm-hmm. things you can do around this planet, but I mm-hmm. want to get back to I think what your specific question is is like, hey, dude, why not just stay as the mayor of the city of Newark? You can make a lot of difference Maybe there. Maybe like guys fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love those, but I love those days. I used to people used to people used to text me as something. I would just say on it would be my response. I could yeah, I I could get things done. Didn't you get a cat out of a tree once or something like that? (laughs) I mean, I'm like this. He's like best mayor ever. This is like I think we used to call you super mayor. I loved, I loved, and this is probably why I'm single because I loved. I would get up out of bed. Somebody tweet me. Stop blaming that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a different a different podcast would let me get away with (laughs) that. I'm gonna stop being your tricks. You're getting cats out of trees. You know how many people are lined up at you. Know? Oh, Mr. Mayor. Oh, my cat's in the tree, Mr. Mayor. Oh, God bless America. I can't mm-hmm. get I can't get one by. Okay. But my point mm-hmm. is, is that I love those days. Mm-hmm. I love those days. But now. Yeah, you were awesome. Yeah, but now mm-hmm. I, I get a bill done. I write mm-hmm. a bill called Opportunity Zones. You've never yeah. heard of it. But what it does is mm-hmm. it's a, a, a national bill that says that every governor can, could show the, the 25 percent of their poorest areas as opportunity zones mm-hmm. and give special incentives to investments in areas that really don't get investment. I go around the country right now. I was up in New Hampshire campaigning. A woman grabs me, lawyer, and she says to me, uh, you have brought millions of dollars to my community because we mm-hmm. couldn't get investors to come here until we had your opportunity zones. Mm-hmm. So now it, Newark has opportunity zones. It's helping us. But now it's a bill that's helping you know, thousands and thousands of areas. It's going to move billions of dollars. But let me go further than that. Just being a presidential candidate I am loving how my my gun legislation mm-hmm. uh, agenda there is is forcing every other presidential candidate to respond to it. It's changing sure. the conversation. Let me give you one I just did. I just said, look, there are about 17,000. We counted about 17,000 people that unequivocally are unjustly incarcerated right now. Mm-hmm. These are people like uh, uh, the crack cocaine, powder cocaine disparity. that mm-hmm. should be one to one. There's still folks in there because it's now 18 to one. You know there are or marijuana marijuana mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that now it's being legal. There are uh, there are people 
we passed this first step. The, I'm really proud of one of the pieces of legislation that I led on the Democratic side with Dick Durbin to get past this comprehensive criminal justice reform bill that 87 senators voted to say the the sentences are too long and they lowered sentences. But the problem is, is if you were convicted the day before that bill, mm. you have a dramatically longer sentence than the people after that bill because right. they didn't make it retroactive. Well, if 87 senators, Republican and Democrats, say that that was a wrong sentence, why are there still people wallowing in jail? So basically I said there's about 17,000 people that are unjustly incarcerated. If I am president of the United States, they're getting clemency. And I challenge the Democrats to say— Instant clemency? Well, we, there should be a process. Let's make sure they didn't mm-hmm. do something in jail that makes them— We know they're dangerous. <laughs> you you know, might want to vet some of these. They, they will all be vetted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just uh-huh. think about this for a second. I've now changed the conversation. I've told other presidential candidates, 17,000 people. When I used to watch presidential candidates from Newark, campaigns from Newark, I used to wish there were people— they would bring up issues like housing, issues that we're really dealing with. And now every day in this campaign, I get to push the field on issues uh, that that are really important to low-income communities, both black and brown communities and rural communities. Mm-hmm. The, the chances I will have to make a difference on the issues that I know Ross Brocka, my new mayor, wishes he had a president that really had their back on issues that we're struggling with in our communities. Mm-hmm. And so I am, I am so excited that I have had a chance to be – a mayor. And and that experience as a chief exec, having, having actually had to run stuff, I wish everybody who was going to be president of the United States had to had to run stuff, had to fear right. making payroll, had to deal with everything from sewers blowing up to multiple homicides and communities being shattered and torn apart and have to stand in the saddle and deal with those challenges. Invaluable experience that will make me a better mayor, a be, mm-hmm. better president. Um, and I know that the issues that I've dealt with intimately, like I hear these questions now, how would you deal with climate change? And I'm like, you know what? We should start changing all these questions to like – because most of us in this race for president have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. What have you done already to deal with that? And I have a story as a guy who ran a city. We realized that Bush wasn't going to solve the, the – wasn't even going into the Kyoto Accords on climate change. And so me and a bunch of other mayors said we produce most of the carbon cities in America – a lot of this problem. We're going to step up and have a climate agenda. Mm-hmm. And I didn't just say this is going to be an issue. I said everything we do now in my city is going to be with a green lens. So our formerly incarcerated men and women coming back, we we created jobs for them greening our city. Uh, we, we, we took all of our buildings and said our kids that need jobs, we're going to get you green jobs, apprenticeship programs for environmental retrofits. And we became a very green city. Right now, Greenpeace – ranks me and Jay Inslee as the two best candidates for president on climate. And a lot of that has to do with what I've already shown I can do on these issues should I become yeah. executive. So all of this has been great training ground to be the chief executive of the United States of America. Let me ask you this. I've always thought you're very charismatic, you know, and I, I think you have a lot of political talent. But it seems like you, you haven't broken through yet, yeah. you know. And by breaking through, you haven't had that moment yet where America goes, oh, who's this coming? Yes. Like, like the way that Kamala Harris had it in the debate. Yes. Where she not only had a moment, but it was it broke through where it translated to like a rise. In the polls. In polls and that. Do you have uh, any thoughts about that? Yeah, or a lot reasons? of thoughts. And, well, well, first um, of all, let's just like— Is take, it frustrating no. at this point? Let's take mm-hmm. let's take a—, a, a level set for a second. Mm-hmm. I'm running for president of the United States. I'm in the top six easily of the candidates. Out of 68 candidates. Out of 77 candidates. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I am uh, on the debate stage polling. Right. Since the debate that we had, 
20 million Americans did suddenly. You know, I was the most Googled person mm-hmm. on that first debate stage where people were like. I think you spoke the most. I did. Too. I had the most time right. speaking. People were like. Who? And they chose random people from the audience to be on the stage with you guys, too. It like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like the price is right. It looked like, you know, it's like, My, you want to debate? Come, come on, on down. down. <laughs> You're the next person debating. There, there were a whole lot Democratic of people. Debate. There were a whole lot of people. That's what it looked debate. like to me. I'm like, yeah. who's this accountant on the end? Who's <laughs> some CPA who's on the end? Yes, it's mm. your Cousin Marv is up there too. Yeah, <laughs> some of these people I still don't know, and I'm in this, you know. Yeah, yes, yes. But so what happened to us after that debate? And it's only not even been a full week at the time we we're recording this, and we were the most Google candidate. Mm-hmm. We had our best fundraising days in this campaign Got because it. people noticed me, and and we're getting a lot of people going to CoreyBooker.com and saying, you know what, I want to hear more from this brother. Let's mm-hmm. keep him on that stage. So this is the second thing I want to say. So level set is pinch myself. I'm in the top tier of a presidential field. We're still seven, eight months out before Uh Iowa. Now, the second thing is history. Nobody Uh who's been Uh polling ahead this far out, not one Uh Democratic nominee has ever gone on to be president of the United States. Hmm. Not one who's polled ahead. Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, some guy named Barack Obama were not leading in the polls Mm -hmm. eight, nine months out. In fact— Obama was way behind in Iowa, not just Iowa, in, in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So, so people, Well, black people weren't convinced he could win. No, they, yeah. weren't, they weren't. They needed Iowa. No. They're like, oh, this brother's got a chance. Right, mm-hmm. but Carter and, and Clinton, these were folks that were all seen as underdogs. Mm-hmm. This far out, uh, one New York Times re- reporter was telling me that he sent around uh, statements people were saying about people like Obama and Carter and stuff like that beforehand. Right. Um, so— if, if, I guess if, Gore was the front runner, and he got the nomination. So three times in yeah. history has there been a person lost. who was yeah. who was a front runner. Mm-hmm. Only three times from our party where there was somebody that was a front runner that stayed a front runner and won, and they never won the presidency. Mm. It was Mondale, Gore, and Secretary Clinton in 2016. Wow! So if you historically you just threw some shade on I'm, Mr. Biden, no, I'm know. not. I'm just saying historically, I'm <laughs> actually a really advantageous place. And we're growing mm-hmm. this campaign in the way we should. You see articles popping now about Iowa that Cory Booker might upset in Iowa because he's got the best organization on the ground. Mm-hmm. I come from a community organizing area. My city is about the size of the electorate of the first two primary states. And we won those underdogs, under polling. We won those because we out-organized on the ground. So, so you want... So I'm like, are you saying I'm Barack Obama light? No, you know? no. I'm saying I don't want. I'm saying <laughs> I, I don't want to. As a double entendre, I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> got to put some out for the light skin brothers yeah. out there. <laughs> I'm saying that I don't want to win the news cycle in in okay. Ju- July of of 2019. Well, I want to win. Jealous the, of Kamala? Be honest. Kamala's like my sister. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I was happy for her because yeah. some of the stuff that she was talking about on that debate stage. Right. You remember the week before? Oh yeah, I was calling Biden out for myself. Yeah. So well, let uh, me let's talk about that Biden thing for a second. Yeah, I was a little confused by. Well, let me ask you straight up. It sounded like you were offended by what he said. Is that right? I was offended by the way he used the word. Why, boy. why were you offended? Because because you know. Um, Vice President Biden, right? I know him well. Right. Yeah. And so I respect what, him and I love him. Right. But for him to say in a joking, mock uh, Southern accent, mm-hmm. well, they didn't call me boy. <laughs> mock Southern accent. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he listened to the recording. And the mock oh, he was code switching is what you're saying. I, I don't know if that's even a code he knows. So mm-hmm. I don't even know if it was. Either way, he was saying they didn't, he didn't call me boy. He called me son. Uh-huh. And, and. And a lot of people exploded during that time. I waited like 24 hours uh-huh. because I'm like, does he understand why a, a white segregationist would look at him as his son? 
uh-huh. and, and would save calling boy to people like my father because they were trying to demean and degrade them. You felt he was being tone deaf? You were like, I was just, were you kind of correcting him or were you really offended? That's what I wanted to know. I, I, I think that we mm-hmm. are at a point where a lot of folks don't understand the power dynamics at play in this country that make a lot of folks, not just black folks, but in this case, black folks, feel less than, lesser, looked down upon. Sure. And as a guy, again, that lives in a community where those power dynamics play out in practical, real ways, mm-hmm. why is a black person looked at more threatening? Right. And some, these power dynamics play out in a in a real way. This, this party in this country does not need a nominee or a president who doesn't understand uh, the, these dynamics and these nuances of race at a time after this president that we need leaders that can pull us together that can heal, that can address these issues. And you I'm think not, Biden is tone deaf on race? I'm, I'm saying that he made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And then when he was called on it, instead of saying, I'm imperfect, make mistakes, learning moment, not just for me, but let's talk about this, he fell into a defensive crouch. Mm-hmm. And then stunningly to me, then turns around and says, I owe him an apology. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was one of those moments where I was just like, come on, man, <laughs> uh-huh. come on. We, 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 we need a leader that doesn't fall into a defensive crouch, shift blame, but instead can talk about this in vul- with, a, with a sense of vulnerability because mm-hmm. I've made mistakes. I've said stupid stuff. But, but what real leaders do, I believe, the best, not this Trump, no apology, no way, no nothing, but you step forward and say, hey, look, let's, let's address this. I, I could have said this better. This was my intention, but let's talk about some of the larger issues. Th- this is what we're going to need right now. Because there's a lot of reconciliation that has to happen in this country. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, lot of healing and growth that needs to happen in the country, especially around issues of race. And, 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 and what frustrates me is with Biden, who, again, I love and respect. But, but there are people who voted for the 1994 crime bill. People in the Congressional Black Caucus voted for it. But now stand up and say, I made a mistake. And here's what I learned from that. He, he, he won't even say that that was a mistake. A bill that I was in law school during that time. And it just fueled mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. President Clinton um, said he thought it was a mistake. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, wait a minute. Is this a, is this a presidential candidate running for our party where African-American voters are essential not just to win the nomination, but essential for the larger coalition we need to, to, to win the White House? Okay, now you say that, and it's interesting that Biden has the majority of the black support right now, especially among black women. Yeah, I don't. I don't think right. that's interesting. So, how, how do you break the the black ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> how do you break through there? I, I, I mean, but seriously, how do you connect there? Because, like, I think Kamala Harris made a good case for breaking that black ceiling a bit, you right. know, because she went right at Biden, who's you know, yeah. But I, I, he, I right I, now he's the Michelangelo on the black ceiling, right? Force right <laughs> America, let's, let's shift out of this you know, metaphor with real his quick. Hand reaching out for the votes, you know. Listen, listen, Kamala had a great moment, and I, I applaud her actually for it. Yeah. Um, remember, it was on a debate stage in front of twenty million people, but I was calling this out a week before. Yeah, and that. you stood up for her on Twitter too. Yes, I saw that. yes, yeah. and and stood up for, for Kamala on Twitter, who was being ridiculously attacked. Yeah, we, we're. I'm not judging an election by moments or mm-hmm. um, news cycles. We are seven months out from the first vote being cast in Iowa. Right. We have showed in my campaign consistent brick by brick growth in this campaign. I am. I feel very mm-hmm. calm and confident that we are going to win Iowa because we're doing what needs to be done. And right. there will be times 
where people have moments and then there'll be time. We've seen this. You've already seen candidates go through the washing machine. They're yeah. up one week. Everybody's talking about it, Then they're really down. Well, McCain was then not com- even in it when he uh, – at this point in 2008. It, yeah. yeah. Giuliani, I think, was leading the, the yeah, trip, something like that. Clinton and Giuliani. Yeah. yeah. And so what I'm saying is that th- this is a time for me to, to focus on every day coming out, being – Put it, because I was shocked that fifty or name recognition amongst African Americans was only fifty percent, uh-huh. and so Biden, all these people have a hundred percent name recognition right yeah. now. We're still introducing ourselves, and we've got. He set, rode with the first black president. You know, yeah. he's in the same car. <laughs> <laughs> they saw him in the neighborhood. Yes, that's yes. what it. Re- I mean, it's a joke, but it really sometimes it's as simple as that for a lot of people. You know, and you know. Um, not to make light of something, but many people vote on recognition and that type of thing, you know. Yeah, who you're comfortable um, with. Who do you yes, believe is going to have your back? Exactly. Um, who, who, and, and you're right when you said this about Obama. It's like everybody, we're all a little traumatized right now. Mm-hmm. We, we want to get this guy out of office. Well, what do you think is the best approach? Okay, so like when you mentioned Biden, one of the things I thought that – I thought what he did doesn't work for primary, but – I think maybe some people thought his attitude might work against Trump, you know, that not back down type of attitude. Like you've kind of come out of you want to win with love, not with fire or whatever. Well, hold on. I Um, I, I want to challenge that because I hear this all the time. mm -hmm. Where you and I, you and I, and I know how you grew up. Mm -hmm. Love is fire. I Mm -hmm. mean, trust me, my mama brought some fire. Right. Um, Love is the toughest force there is. Okay. So what do you mean by, by love? When you say it, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Like, and I'm talking about battling for the presidency. Right. And so how do we beat bullies and, and right. demagogues in the past? You can go from McCarthyism to Bull Connor. Did they beat Bull Connor by bringing bigger dogs and more powerful fire hoses? Or did they beat, bring some ferocious love, unapologetic, unarmed truth? And they did things that appeal to the moral imagination of mm-hmm. this nation, the consciousness of this country. We will not beat Trump by fighting him on his turf. In his terms, that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. He wants to make this election all about him. He wants to dominate the news cycle, suck the oxygen out of the room, have everybody responding to him on his turf. That's if I don't want that fight. That's not how I've beat bullies in the past. Mm-hmm. You beat bullies by not making it about him, but making it about us. Not making it about what we're against, but making it about what we're for. And 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 you inspire people to know that we're not. We don't need to show the least of who we are, the worst of who we are. We need to rise to become the best of who we are. Okay. Um, and that sounds great. But let me present this to you. I'm like, I've unfortunately predicted Trump would win that election, and I did not like that prediction. Yeah. I have predicted as of now, I feel he's going to get reelected, but it's not for a lot of the issues people may think. I think it's very difficult to unseat an incumbent yes. during a strong economy. You know, it's just difficult. Right. Americans— Right. Just I, you know, if you look through history, that really hasn't happened. You know, right. the other sometimes war is another factor. It's it's hard to unseat a president in the middle of a war. You know, given that, it feels like one of the approaches is you have to give people a compelling reason to not keep going so, with that. So this know? is the problem by having this conversation mm-hmm. right now. Right. Where will the economy be 16 months from now? Mm-hmm. And if you know, but you have to make I your want, case now. If though. you know, I want to right. invest with you. No, seriously, mm-hmm. what happened? When Obama was McCain, mm-hmm. one of the things that happened is the economy started falling dr- pretty dramatically around the time of an election in the fall of that year. 
So what I'm saying to you is— You're not betting on the economy. No, 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 no. Down, I'm right? saying to you is the case I'm going to make will mm-hmm. be independent of the circumstances of the economy. Because, okay. uh, because I believe right now—and by the way, because I can't— some, some Democrats are talking down the economy, but I feel if they were in charge of it, they'd be talking it up. But I think that's political speak. I, I think that's political speak, too. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I return to my base. Mm-hmm. This economy is not working for folk. Mm-hmm. If if you live in in a community of any type, sure, where but, you're working full time jobs, and it rarely does. But, right. but but what it rarely does. But we used to be an economy. Mm-hmm. This this is just the last few decades where we had a, this massive shift in, in disparities of wealth. Remember, we we were up until the recession, the black white wealth gap was closing in this country. Now it's back to where it was around the time I was born. Mm-hmm. But we were we used to have a more of a shared growth economy. The rules were sure. different. You worked a minimum wage job in my dad's era, you were above the poverty line because the minimum mm-hmm. wage was above the poverty line. It's not right now. Part of that is we've changed from. An employee-invested job situation to an investor uh, exactly job situation where it's more about pleasing investors rather than rewarding employees. Exactly. The, the, we looked at a study that they asked, I think, about CFOs. Have they ever made decisions that were not in the be- long-term best interest of your company in order mm-hmm. to meet your quarterly stock reports? And right. Like 84% said absolutely. We've changed the very nature of our capitalist system that is focusing on short-termism, uh, wealth returns for stock. Right. By the way, in, a, in about mm-hmm. a third of our stocks are being are foreign-owned. So we're doing more and more to create profits for less and less, many people uh, overseas. And we've gotten away from, I think New York Times did this great article where they compared a janitor that worked decades ago for Kodak versus a janitor that works for Apple. Well, the janitor worked for Kodak. They followed her. She did. She got a tuition assistance program, had all the benefits, all that. She, got, she actually moved up in the company because she got her education. The janitor that works for Apple doesn't even work for Apple. They work for this outsourced company that suppresses wages in order to win that bid. Now that person is not home checking homework or going to school at night. They're working two jobs just trying to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. There's all of these forces that are created an economy that's not only less fair for workers, it's less competitive for 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 businesses. We have you, oligarchies, two, three companies yeah. now controlling entire sectors from pharma to Agriculture, this corporate consolidation is working against free market capitalism. I completely agree with you on that. I, I actually was lucky enough to speak with President Clinton about this um, a couple of years ago, and he had a lot of, you know, um, diagnosis of it, I guess, you know. But I haven't heard prescriptions of it. Like many people talk about that disappearing manufacturing class. Yes. You know, which was a big part of the 20th century for the American middle class of people who were able, to, as you say, to make that honest living, as we say, right? You know, where you didn't have to have a super job in order to live comfortably. Right, you right, know? right. Or you didn't have to have those jobs. But it seems like, I feel like those jobs are, the nature of those jobs are kind of gone, but something hasn't really taken its place. Do you have, like, ideas of what's the type of thing that takes the place of that? Because I feel it's always hard. It's almost impossible to go back. You have to have vision for how to replace that type right. of thing. Right, and so, so first of all— mm-hmm. Absolutely. But let's you know just start, what I mean? You know uh, oh, my God. Like, I can tell you. Right. And this is where I can just start telling you what the America will look like, God willing, if I'm president. First yeah. of all, let's take a, take back those Trump tax cuts and give every working class person a massive direct tax break by expanding the earned income tax credit. It would raise the salaries of 150 million Americans, cut poverty in a third, and would cost less than these toxic Trump tax cuts. Mm-hmm. There's ways to get back to work paying, having dignity, having security, and we could talk about that. But your specific question is about like— Well, I'm talking about structure, though, not— like oh, I'm, I'm a, with you on this situation. I, I'm with you on this. What's, so, that, what's that structure? So there are so right. many. First of all, 
we know every dollar invested in infrastructure will create $2 of growth. You mm-hmm. can't outsource fixing America's electrical grid, fixing America's water systems, fixing America's right. roads and bridges. Or creating new electrical grids. We have electric cars now. Exactly. You know, green, and, green economies and so it worked that for need a, infrastructure. It worked for a Republican right. named Eisenhower, who in today's yeah. dollars, he put a trillion dollars in the out there. Highway. Yes, mm-hmm. we could do that today, Put have—, have Put millions and millions, trillions, two trillion dollars into infrastructure. Create so many jobs right here, and not only jobs, but they would be pathways to careers, welders, advanced right. manufacturing, right. machinists. There, there are things we can do. Doubling down on green tech and in, an investment in trying to transform into dealing with climate change, but doing the kind of things we need to do. Mm-hmm. Next generation nuclear, which has so much less of a risk that sure. this generation does. Not talked about enough, I think. It is definitely mm-hmm. not. It, it has to be. This is where I differentiate myself mm-hmm. with other people I think in the that's field. Great has to be a part mm-hmm. of our of our there's so much areas where we could be booming again and creating blue collar right. jobs that pay living wages retirement security union jobs and that's what i don't understand this is actually not that complicated mm-hmm. and, and in fact some of it's the playbook minus the racism and sexism uh, of the greatest generation where they invested in education <laughs> uh, where, where they, minus <laughs> the racism that's a big minus <laughs> yeah. but they invested but, but they invested in infrastructure yeah. they invested in education we used to be the most R&D intensive economy on the really? planet Earth. We're not anymore right. in terms of percentage of your GDP that you invest in research and development. Why do we complicate this and stop start doing what we should be doing is pointing the fingers about the things that have perverted our economy. We talked about the short-termism already. We talked about using trillions of dollars of our commonwealth to give tax cuts to the wealthiest people. Mm-hmm. The corporate tax breaks alone turned into stock buybacks, which again – are benefiting a lot of foreign stock Yeah, they owners. haven't been uh, rewarding employees. Like, no. Th- that was the whole Republican yes. talking point. And so what I'm saying to you is there are common sense things. I could give this speech in front of uh, uh, moderates, uh, mm-hmm. of progressives, of the kind of common sense things we can do to get back to investing in each other or, or, and, and growing an economy that works for everybody right. with fair rules and level playing field and pathways to success for everybody. Great. Um, let me ask you a couple of things, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thanks again for stopping by, Senator. I really appreciate this. Well, a big problem right now is immigration. Yes. You know, and I know you have some ideas on that. Just give me, uh, where do you stand on the problem that's going on at the border right now? I feel it's a little more complicated than it's being portrayed in the press on many different levels. Like, well, where are you in this in this fight right now to— um, I think restored dignity. I think was one of your phrases. Yes, but but I want to tell uh, you this. And but there, also, there are people invested yes, in making this a lot more complicated than it is. Okay. So you do not surrender your human rights when you come to this country, mm-hmm. and and having facilities that that denigrate, degrade, uh, um, that expecting mothers, nursing moms, children. American Pediatric Association. The government itself has said we're doing permanent damage to these children. Can we just agree? To stop it, these folks do not pose a risk to our country. And by criminalizing it, we didn't do that before. Criminalizing? The entrance into this country. Okay. They're, they're now saying that this is this is all the pretext that Trump is using to cause this problem, this human rights crisis. It used to be dealt with in the civil courts, which are done in a far more humane way that actually make us safer. If you have, if you have somebody who has legal representation, they are virtually 100% likely to stay in the court process as opposed uh-huh. to people who are now fleeing horrific conditions, private prisons, all of which I will end because this is not keeping us safer. It's it's sucking up our law enforcement resources, trying to, to keep us safe from that nursing mom who's a real threat to our country. Mm. Senator, how do you deal with the numbers though? Um 
I'm always shook by the numbers of people who are coming over for all those right. reasons, which I don't disagree with. If I was in that same situation, I'd be trying to do no, it too. But, you, but, 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 but at the same time, we are a sovereign nation. You know, it, we're, people just don't have the right to enter absolutely. here without permission. They're, they're, they're so, needs. Like, how do you handle that part of it? Because that's the part that I feel the Democrats don't explain enough. Well, well you know? but my point is, is like— The humanitarian part I get. Right, okay, so let's you step know, away from the humanitarian part. The other part, part of it, I too. want safety and right. security for my families and my country, mm-hmm. period. The way he's going about it is making us less safe, and it's surrendering our values. Right. And, and we're losing common sense. Why is this administration at a time in the Northern Triangle that there's horrific corruption and violence? Why are we pulling resources away from those countries mm-hmm. that, that 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 are allowing that root cause of the migration crisis in the first place? So you'd invest more in those countries. Special, I'm uh, right away when I'm president of the United States, a special mm-hmm. envoy working with our area allies to do a Marshall Plan like for that area to stop that crisis from happening. These countries, by the way, are not the size. Of, of Brazil, we're talking about small nations where we can have a big impact, especially if we stand with our allies as opposed to as opposed to demeaning and degrading our own allies that we need to deal with crises like this. This is not as complicated as Trump wants it to be. He's precipitating a crisis. He's perverting our laws. He's violating things like the Flores decision that outlines how we should treat with kids. He's mm-hmm. violating our laws uh, in terms of uh, uh, of human rights and human dignity. He's making us less safe by sucking up law enforcement resources. And here's things we don't talk about enough. Immigrant communities all around the country now are afraid to, to go forward, to come forward to the police. Mm-hmm. Because of a program called 287G, they're afraid that the police, if they come to report sexual violence, if they come to report robberies, if they come to report rapes, domestic violence, they, they feel like they will be deported. And so we have a situation, and I see this with my police department, that they're frustrated that the deep relationships they had in immigrant communities now are becoming frayed where they can't even get information. They can't even get tips. People are afraid to come out. And even – in fact, our businesses in my city are seeing – like they're all around this country are seeing dips because immigrants are afraid to even be in cafes now. They're afraid to drop their kids off at school. I sat with an American child, 14 years old, in Nevada with a bunch of immigration activists, and she's mm-hmm. telling me stories of her friend, another American friend, a girl, getting assaulted and wouldn't have reported because her parents are undocumented. Mm-hmm. And she's afraid that if her parents come to school, have to come to school to deal with this assault that she went through, that, that her parents will be deported. You know what we're doing to American families and American communities because we've now created a fear-based immigration system that violates people's rights? Enough of this. There's a much better way to do it. If we step up and lead with our values, which will make us more secure, which will actually be less expensive, will affirm human rights and human dignity, and will help to stop an international crisis like we see mm-hmm. with the migratory crisis Is right it now. fair to – when you say fear-based immigration system, but that's not really an immigration system. What you're talking about – is a xenophobia demagoguery? Depo- but I think you're talking about a deportation system. That's not once someone's here. That that's not an immigration system that is doing what you're talking about. You're talking about the enforcement of of illegal immigration. No, 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 and, no, no. This, no. If you're talking about remember, what, well, remember what Donald Trump said. Right. They they literally had the plan that they're going to treat people so horribly here. Right. I remember. That somehow that's going no, to Trump create is a deterrent. An asshole, right? Yeah, but that, somehow that's <laughs> right. going to that is a, that is a right. for lack of a better word. That was a conscious plan mm-hmm. to rip children away from their parents. Right. A conscious plan to make detention facilities. Right. I'm, I'm not speaking about that. We're talking yeah. about people who are already here oh. and that are involved in a community, as you say. Yes. But they're hiding in the shadows because they don't want to be deported. Right. Right. I'm and, saying that's not an 
immigration issue. It's not like getting into the country issue. That, no. Uh, like those two issues that are going on right now. Right. How do you treat people who are here uh, you, where they don't have to live in fear like you're talking about? How do you treat people at well, the border is a separate issue. Right. People right. who are— who are entering the country yes, now. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because one is like dreamers and that kind of category. Which we, which I will categorically right. make sure that there are TPA recipients, dreamers, the, the parents of dreamers, that, mm-hmm. that, that they are secure in our country. I can do that by executive action before we work to make sure we pass uh, congressional legislation. These are things that we have a lot more power of. But again, I've been down on a, on a bridge in McAllen, Texas. Mm-hmm. Watch people. Uh, literally, I walked over that bridge. It was I did it at night. They want people to look at me and assume I'm a senator, which they often don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I walk over, and immediately the border crossing uh, guard on the other side starts telling me, "Tan peligroso aquí, necesita regresar. You need to go back." Ooh, breaking out that Spanish. Uh, I'm again. sorry, man. I feel I like I'm at the debate. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> He's Somebody like, call Beto. <laughs> He's breaking out in Spanish. <laughs> Ooh, muy bueno. <laughs> brother, brother, I'm getting a little uncomfortable. It sounds like you're almost getting turned on, like when Morticia spoke French. I know. It just, it just, I think that's what it does are you, to America. Are you Gomez? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know how to get you, America. <laughs> I'm going to switch to Espanol. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the guy was saying it's too dangerous over here. Go back. And right. so I, I circle back, walk over the bridge, and they don't ha- they don't have you know people who've done crossed the border before, like the customs border patrol meets you at the at the border. Mm-hmm. No, they had officers out at the bridge mm-hmm. to turn away people seeking asylum. Wouldn't even let them go present themselves which is the law. Mm-hmm. And so I just start asking him questions as he's like asking me for my passport, I pull it out. He, starts, and he goes, why are you, you know, why are you asking all these questions? And finally I just break and I say, I am a United States Senator. And immediately he changes his tone. But, mm-hmm. you know, that was such a, a, a shameful thing to see that I was told places were dangerous, but they're turning away women with small children mm-hmm. to go back into an area that the, the, the people over there were saying, this town is very dangerous. And so the reports that I'm getting now of people being turned away for asylum, going back into communities that are hostile, that attack them, that, that try to exploit them. And you wonder why Oscar and Valeria, who were turned away, that horrible picture of them drowned, mm-hmm. a father and his daughter, mm-hmm. because people who are trying to come through the, through the legal means of asylum, because this mm-hmm. administration has choked the, the numbers of asylum seekers allowed to come and present themselves, would try to go through those far more risky areas. Because if they stay where they are, they will be attacked or exploited. This is the, this is the crisis we are precipitating by this president's god-awful policies. And I can change that in my first week, uh, first days, first hours as president of the United States, have our values reflected, and keep our border far safer than this, than this uh, president is doing right now. What's your number one issue? What's the biggest issue right now? The reason why, the reason why you need to be president. There's one issue for Cory Booker. You, it's going to, you know, separate you from everybody. I, else. I talk about it everywhere I uh-huh. go. We are becoming a nation that is slipping deeper and deeper into tribalism. Mm-hmm. We hate each other because of how we vote. Fear-based politics, zero-sum game, us against them. Mm-hmm. I was raised, that story I told you was because of people who believed in the beloved community. They believed that we may be different, but we need each other. The lawyer who organized uh, all those sting operations was a white guy who, who got involved in 1965, was struggling with his own business. So he was economically insecure. Mm-hmm. But one night he's sitting on his couch, March 7th, 1965. This is what he told me when I went back to ask him about this. 
And he says he's watching this movie. Most of America, we had three channels back then. Most of America was watching this movie called Judgment at Nuremberg. And he says that, that on that day, they broke away from that movie to show a bridge in Alabama. It was the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And like most Americans now, they're watching these marchers who start in Selma, trying to march to Montgomery for voting rights. And this white guy on a couch a thousand miles away in New Jersey sees them get beaten viciously. It's called Bloody Sunday. And so here's a white guy who suddenly realizes, as much as he's struggling with his own business, even though there's fears of white flight or real estate prices going Mm -hmm. down, he just says, I can't sit here and do nothing. And he gets up showing patriotism, love of country. You can't love your country unless you love your fellow countrymen and women. He didn't ask what party those people are. They weren't the same race, maybe not the same religion. He gets up and says, I got to do something. And he realized he couldn't afford a plane ticket to Alabama. He couldn't afford to close his business. He realized he could only give an hour a week of pro bono work. He calls around and finds this organization called the Fair Housing Council. They start working together. He organizes the sting operation, 66, 67, 68. He says he gets all these people. He's got it going now, 69. He tells me he remembers the day he gets a case file handed to them with two names on it of this couple trying to move up from the South, and the names were Carrie and Carolyn Booker. I am literally a United States senator right now. I'm literally running for president because of this kind of love. Because a white guy on a couch in New Jersey didn't just sit there and do nothing. He got up and said, I can't do everything, but I'm not going to let my inability to do everything to undermine my determination to do something in the cause of my country. I'm running for president because I believe in us. I believe that the lines that divide us aren't stronger than the ties that bind us. I believe we need each other more than we know. And I believe that we're not going to solve our problems by tearing each other down. It's time to get back to finding a way to lift this country up. And all the things we've talked about, from immigration to changes in our economy, we can't do the big, bold things if we can't create uh, bigger coalitions in this country than we're showing right now. And so I believe, like I did in Newark, created uncommon coalitions to create uncommon results, worked across the aisle when I had. I had a Republican governor that I had to find common ground with. I've shown that we could take on the toughest problems in this country by bringing people together in a common cause and common purpose. Now more than ever in America, my party does not need to define itself by what it's against, as I said earlier in this podcast. We've got to get, we've got to get bigger ambitions than just beating Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. That's a floor. It's not a ceiling. It gets us out of the valley. But I got into politics a long time ago not to just get out of the valley. I think we can get to the mountaintop. And so I'm running to try to re- reignite that beloved community, that sense that we need each other, that we're all in this together, that we share a common destiny. That's, those are the chapters in our, in our country's history. When we overcome fascist threats, when we overcome Jim Crow, where we overcome gravity itself and get to the moon, mm-hmm. those are the times in our, in our period where we are at our best. And I believe after this dark, dark period uh, that we've seen in recent years, that this is the moment that the right leader with other leaders could ignite that spirit in our country again. And that's why I want to be president. That's awesome. And very well said, it is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. I was a big space junkie, (laughs) still am. But I think what propelled us during that, because that was one of the roughest decades, you know, in American history outside of the civil war decade, you know, and to have that optimism guiding that movement, yes. I thought it was optimism, you know, from Kennedy's words. So I, I love um, that you would run run a positive campaign and very optimistic. One last question. Yes. Um, this is just my idea. Okay, fine, president. And I just want to run it by you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just want to get your opinion on it. 
um, reparations, okay? Yes. Whether you're for it or against it, I know. You know if I'm leading the bill in the Senate. If you're talking to black people, I know that you're for it. I get it, Corey. Like, <laughs> I get it. I get it. You're going to use fancy words when you're talking to white people. I get that. Oh, my God. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> when you're talking we to black were going to end on a high. It's like reparations. Yes. Coming. <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. Here's my idea. Here's your idea. Okay. Basically, the United States had about 85 years of slavery, you know. I mean, because— 85 years? Well, we were a British colony before that. Okay. Nobody blames Britain for the amount of times, for the amount of years that they were responsible for So you're saying Britain owes us some reparations? I think so. Okay. You know, I think this could be a dual reparation thing, first of all, you know. Like, nobody's nobody's called up and say, hey, MFs, you know, <laughs> this was your country first, you know. I th- we I were think subjects that's... of the British Empire. You were, you know, these were your slaves first, you know. And then, you know, America had it from, like, 1776 to 1861. All right, I get it. But people say 300 years, whatever, all right? Okay. Here, so here's my thing. I'm trying to find compromise in this. Okay. <laughs> 85 years, black people, we get to have white slaves for 85 years. Oh, my God, man. God bless America. Come on. Horrible, And then awful. we're even. Then no. we're done. Oh, no, Corey, my. then we're done. No. Then nobody has to think about it. Oh, my you know, God. You can treat them nicely. No. You know, God put bless this America. in the platform. Oh, my God. This is the way to go. This is not the way to okay, go. Okay, he's not going to go for I'm it. I'm not going right. to go for it. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Senator right, I'm Corey I'm praying Booker. for you. All right. I'm praying for you. All right. We need Maybe some I'll prayer. Should we join? Should we bow our heads? <laughs> Lord, forgive this man for what he has said. It's not. I mean, you should present that. I Lord, <laughs> please deliver him from evil. <laughs> and right now, I am walking through the valley of the you shadow of death. Some tea at me, right? I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear Senator no evil. Senator Cory Booker's running for president. Devil, get you guys. behind me. <laughs> He's got a lot of ideas. Go listen to him. And good luck. It's to good you, to Senator. be with you, brother. Thanks for stopping. Thank you very much. God bless you. Right.